Welcome back, Warriors Tansei Sego Anibuju, Quay Nindaluizi Pampometer, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, laws, and governing systems. It's also about asserting, living, and defending our lands and our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. And our guests today are all about defending our native lands and sovereignty. You'll recall that just before the pandemic, Canada was gripped with nationwide solidarity actions done in support of the Wet'suwet'en Nation, the hereditary chiefs and its clan members, and their directive that both the RCMP and Coastal GasLink Pipeline were to leave Wet'suwet'en territory. All over Canada, Indigenous peoples and non-Indigenous allies were engaged in numerous acts of solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en that included peacefully occupying railways, ports, bridges, highways, ministers' offices, and even legislatures. Their demands were unified and grounded in Indigenous law, Canadian law, and international law. RCMP and Coastal GasLink Pipeline off Wet'suwet'en lands, off of Wet'suwet'en Yinta. Then the pandemic hit and laws were passed to prevent gatherings, but extraction and construction of pipelines were allowed to continue somehow. So this week is Wet'suwet'en Solidarity Week of Action, and this podcast and our guests are here today to try to contribute to that week of action. As part of this solidarity action, I've asked the Indigenous Youth for Wet'suwet'en, who helped organize and participate in the occupation of the British Columbia Legislature in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en Nation to come in today. And this wasn't the usual march to a legislature where you see speeches for an hour and then everyone goes home a few days later. Oh no, these warrior youth had something totally different in mind. And that's what we'll talk about today. What happened and where we are today. I can't thank you enough for taking the time during this pandemic to come on my podcast and share your knowledge and experiences with us. Welcome to the show, Shaylin Sampson and Colin Sutherland-Wilson. Um, yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting us to be on. Oh, it's, it's a real honor for me. I mean, I've been admiring you and were it not for this pandemic, I would have been actually been able to go and meet you all. So thanks so much for taking the time. I know everybody's under the pandemic stress right now, so we'll get right into it. And I'm wondering if each of you could introduce yourself in the way that you like to do it, where you're from, that kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. My name's Shaylin Sampson. I'm Gitsan and Wet'suwet'en. I come from the clan of Rokhibu and the House of Spoke. Um, I grew up in Hegelget, which is um, on Gitsan and Wet'suwet'en territories. It's, it's really an honor to be on the show. I got to do a lot of organizing at the legislature and, and do a lot of work with the media um, and really just learn a lot about myself and my culture. And I was also one of the Indigenous youth that were arrested um, on the final day of the legislature occupations. But yeah, it's, it's really good to be here and, and seeing that there's still work being done to support the Wet'suwet'en. Hey, hey. Uh, good morning. My name is Nilach Ox, or Colin Sutherland-Wilson. I'm a Gixan, and I'm from the clan of Giskast, the Farweed clan. And I'm from the village of, uh, of, of Anspayaks, and I'm from the house of Zibasa. 
and uh, it just warms my heart to see all these ongoing actions and to know that you know, people are not taking a step back, but rather continuing to focus their efforts to hold BC, the RCMP, and CGL to account. And uh, given the circumstances of the pandemic, there's you know so many restrictions on our movements and what we can do in terms of mobilizing, but at the same time, you know, it's been a, a time of deep reflection and we've started to see the true colors of the Canadian state and, you know, their intentions of taking advantage of this time of crises in order to force through this project against the consent of, you know, the Wet'suwet'en Nation. So I'm just deeply honored to be here and to, you know, help contribute what little knowledge I have. Um, yeah. Incredible to imagine that during a pandemic when you know, we can't be out in groups of more than five, that all these pipeline constructions and man camps and transportation and all of this stuff would be allowed to continue. And uh, so I think it's really important that we keep this issue in the public, that we keep, you know, your strong uh, youth and warrior voices out there so that people know that, you know, this isn't going anywhere. It's not like the pandemic has just shut everything down. So I'm wondering before we kind of get into the details about what happened, if, you know, you can share a little bit about your backgrounds, like how you even all came together. Were you all students in the same university? Did you all know each other? I mean, it was very organic. I think just, you know, putting the call out through our families or communities, just basically saying like, you know, we intend to gather as Indigenous youth and we've, you know, for myself, I came out of UVic. I was in the last year of my degree in uh, Indigenous studies and environmental studies and like other people, you know, from all walks of life, all backgrounds, all, you know, occupations, whether they be students or working full time or, you know, we just kind of came together uh, basically as young Indigenous peoples who sought to uphold our laws and to, you know, hold the government accountable for its actions, especially when, you know, their actions of invading a sovereign Indigenous nation have so many dire implications for every Indigenous nation within this country. And uh, I, I think there was no, you know, specific area where we all came from. We just, you know, rallied together from all throughout Victoria you know, neighboring cities even. And was that your experience too, Shaylin? Yeah, I mean, I, I was also a student at UVic and I had been involved with, with student government a bit and, and just different forms of activism in that way. Um, so I had like a pretty solid community at UVic, but um, really when we all came together, it, it looked like all of us reaching out to our networks collectively and the folks that really felt like this was important to them. They're the people that showed up and, and we really built a new community from that. That was, that was from people doing all sorts of things. Like Colin said, people who worked full time, people um, that were going to school or, or doing other things. Um, it was really a mixture of a lot of amazing people from all walks of life. It's almost like a trend I see in, you know, native movements. It always starts out in this very organic way, you know, reaching out to family, community, reaching out to, you know, social justice allies and friends and coming together, which is a really different structure than the political structures, you know, voting someone in and then deciding what's the priority and, you know, passing resolutions and that kind of thing. This is really seems to be more focused on the grassroots people power. Is that kind of how you see it? Yeah, I'd say, 
I'd say we really came together as a collective and, and when big decisions had to be made, we really just tried to gather as many of us as we could um, and move forward and, and problem solve together. And honestly, it was, it was really cool to see the community that came out, not, not only the indigenous community that came out, but I think a lot of allies really showed up for us at the legislature and, and helped keep us safe. And I think it's really cool to just see the way that, that folks valued that. And, and yeah, I'd say it was very grassroots and collective based just reminds me of the way in which things unraveled during Idle No More, for example, or the way, you know, it was the youth that was kind of starting things on the ground um, during Dakota Access Pipeline, you know, this kind of really youth-inspired movement. Um, but so grassroots and, you know, as consensus-based as possible and, you know, really not about, you know, the old school hierarchies and politics and things like that. It's something that's really different and it's it's a great example. And I'm wondering, like, could you give the listeners like a bit of an overview about how you came to occupy the legislature? So we've done some previous podcasts um, with some of the people from the Gidimden camp about what the issue is for the Wet'suwet'en and Coastal Gas Link and, and how they didn't have consent and that kind of thing. But what... What made you all come together to come to the legislature? Like, what was it that really pushed you? A lot of us were based on the Kwangan and Wasanic territories, which is um, so-called Victoria. And and we knew that we had to do something. Um, mm. So there's Indigenous youth that came from over 30 different nations that were that all came together. And, and being in Victoria, there's just a really good opportunity with the legislature being there. Um, to hold those specific MLAs accountable and, and let them see the faces of people that care about the th- work that they're doing and and how they're impacting different people in the North that we couldn't see. Um, and we really wanted to make sure that eyes were going to the Wet'suwet'en in order to keep them safe because we didn't know when the raid was going to happen when all of this started. And it was actually the morning that we started the first ledge occupation um, that they raided um, Unistoten. And so we really had to take a look at that and just and just recognize that the, the house was in session here in BC and it was a really good opportunity for us to be there and for them to see us and, and draw more attention to what was happening on Wet'suwet'en territories. Yeah, and uh, some of our thoughts going into it, this government is willing to bring the front lines to our home territories and so you know, we can return the favor and bring it right to the, the seat of their power at the BC legislature. Like leading up to that occupation, we had a previous occupation uh, of the Ministry of Energy Mines and Petroleum Resources. And the, uh, I guess the, the ministry that was under the purview of Michel Mangala. And so that was really the, the first instance of us organizing as the Indigenous Youth for Wet'suwet'en. And so we occupied basically like a hallway within the entrance of that building, like an empty hallway where there were some elevators. They shut the elevators down and we sat there and just prayed and uh, sang and basically reiterated, you know, what needed to be said in terms of what was going on up north, that the RCMP and CGL must leave those territories and that diplomacy must prevail and that good faith discussions were a precursor to any solution and that you know the premier had an obligation to meet with the hereditary leadership just uh, as the ultimate sign of good faith which 
you know, he has failed to do so to this point. You know, we were there and then, you know, that escalated to the point where I believe it was around 13 of us were, uh, yeah, aggressively removed from that building by just an overwhelming use of police force despite, you know, our peacefulness. And, and so following that, you know, it took us a little while just to consider where we needed to go, where we can be safe, where we can apply pressure and and ultimately have that, uh, you know, that that space in order for people to to interact with us, to meet us, to uh, learn more and to start to build community around the issues in our home territories. The ceremonial gate at the legislature was just a natural fit. You know, that was a gate that's reserved purely for royalty. It's, uh, you know, just one example of, you know, the very kind of colonial aspects of our government that continue to, you know, ultimately define how this country is operating and how it continues to exploit our territories in the name of, you know, interests that are very foreign to our own. That, That occupation, I don't think it was entirely intentional, but it did completely line up with the, the opening of the legislature, the timing, the, uh, the, the ceremonies preceding the speech from the throne. For the first time in history, according to my understanding, we shut down that gross display of colonial pageantry. And that was all in response to the actions of this government. And, you know, I'd be happy if that ceremony never occurs ever again in the so-called province of British Columbia. I think that was just kind of one one victory that was very much beautiful. And and I think it really started to galvanize the community and to help people understand how much power we have when we gather and how our voices, when we unite them, like we could really be heard. Like we, we shook the stones of that legislature building on that day. There was not a moment when they couldn't hear, you know, us on the outside speaking from our hearts. Ultimately, you know, I think the, the, the BC government was, you know, the, they heard us. They were, they were razzled by us. They couldn't even, like, it, it took the premier an entire day to recover from that experience before being able to address it publicly. It was powerful on so many levels. One, because it was far beyond what we see usually. So when there's an issue, people will march to a legislature somewhere in Canada and say their piece and they they walk away and it might get some media and it might not. But this was a scenario where there's a lot of people thinking, oh, this is going to be a few hours. Oh, this will be at most a day or two. Surely these youth, you know, they're going to get tired of of occupying the legislature. But that's not exactly what happened. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can kind of give me, a, you know, a little bit of the timeline. You know, you were there. Was it always your intention to be there long term? Or were you just kind of going with whatever felt right at the moment? Something I got asked a lot during the ledge occupations by by reporters and journalists was, um, how how long are you willing to stay here? And and for me, the answer was always that my my ancestors have been doing this for hundreds of years, mm-hmm. and we're gonna do it as long as it takes, and as long as the RCMP and Coastal Gas Link were on the Yinta, like we were willing to stay there, and and. That's still the case. We're still willing to do this work without hesitation because we know that this is going to impact the generations to come. And, and we have young families that are going to grow into this. And so 
people who are willing to be out on the cold steps at night and willing to stay up all night and bring us food because because they recognize that the threat that's going on with Soatan territories is a threat to all of our nations because or if the government tries to get this pipeline to go through with Soatan territories, then they can use that as a model to get it through all of our territories. And, and we all have deep connections with the land and, and our family histories that go along with that. And so I think that's why a lot of people were very willing to stay out there. And, and I think we, we really took it day by day and wanted to honor and respect how people were feeling and, and how we could carry on. And really, it, it, it was amazing to see how long we ended up staying there. Because in total, with the two separate occupations, it was um, 16 days, which is bizarre to think back to now, but amazing to just reminisce on like all the all the amazing engagements that we got there. Follow-up question to that is, what about it made it like two separate occupations? Was it specifically because of police intervention or was it just um, plans evolved over time? I think a lot of it was us just learning as we went, you know, trying to figure out the best ways to you know, balance our actions while keeping everyone safe. You know, just trying to make sure everyone was taken care of and comfortable because, you know, in the end, we were just, uh, you know, for the most part, composed of a bunch of young kids who were, you know, just kind of heeding this call and this uh, ancestral responsibility, you know, just doing the best we can given the circumstances. Like, ultimately, a bunch of kids with their voices going up against the Canadian state with all of its police and guns. So ultimately, you know, we had to make like a lot of decisions on the fly. We had to constantly be open to communication and, you know, addressing people's needs, desires and fears. You know, just the way it worked out was, for the most part, just trying to make sure that, like, no matter what happened, everyone was safe, everyone was taken care of and all of our needs were addressed. So there was a lot of that happening, like all the meanwhile, while we were on the steps, while we were giving speeches on the daily, while we were holding rallies, while we you know, witnessed the, the fountain in front of the legislature turn into blood. And there was so much going on. But like first and foremost, you know, making sure like the young people that were there were taken care of so they were able to express themselves fully. That was super important. And on the on the last day of the first sledge occupation, which was on um, when the speech from the throne happened, there was an absurd amount of police presence at the legislature that day. There was city buses that came just full of police officers. And there was over a thousand people at the legislature that were standing in solidarity with Wet'suwet'en that, that came to support us. And so we really recognized that after that day and after those interactions that day, with MLAs and security and the police, we really saw how big the threat of the police presence was. And I think we really wanted to keep everyone as safe as we could and recognizing that the police in our communities really don't keep Indigenous people safe. And so we had to look at the balances of, of what that meant for us. And, and we really wanted to walk out of there knowing that we had made history really on the steps and and that wasn't something that we were going to forget and and that we knew that we would come back and we would be able to do more work to hold this government accountable. One of the things I really respect about 
your movement here was that you were very much focused on the safety of everybody involved, all of the youth. And I also noticed that you actually had a list of protocols for people if they wanted to join you at the legislature. And I'm wondering if you can talk about those protocols a little bit, because it's not something that we see at every movement or action, but Indigenous movements and actions are a little bit different. So could you share some of those protocols? I mean, we had some some media protocols specifically that if there were any media to show up to direct them to the Indigenous youth at the top of the steps. And for, for safety, we had a police liaisons and we asked that any people that were present didn't speak to the police and that we had police liaisons that would do that. And so if any police approached them to direct them to the police liaisons. Um, we also had legal observers that would observe all the interactions that folks had with the police. And then we also just asked that people came in without any um, use of drug or drugs or alcohol. Yeah, there was a there was a lot of things set in place just that we reiterated many times over the megaphone and just in talking with folks because we wanted it to be as safe as a space as it could. It ultimately couldn't be completely safe because it's direction, mm -hmm. but um, we wanted to make sure that there was a community there that really respected those protocols and recognized the need for all of them to be in place just to keep that space on a mutual understanding, I guess. And all the while, like each and every one of us as individuals are like, completely accountable to our nations and our communities. And we had so many youth and so many children that would come join us on the legislature. So many drum groups, singers. Uh, we just had a constant presence of community. And, and so we were accountable to our own communities and ensuring that we're doing things, you know, in a good way kind of following our teachings, our laws, and while being mindful of well, being guests on the territories of the, you know, the Lekwungen, Satanich, and Esquimalt peoples there. So there was a lot of people that, you know, we were ultimately accountable to, and a lot of laws that we, we sought to respect, and we worked our hardest to make sure that everything we were doing was, you know, in a good way, and just to honor the peoples that ought to be honored. And ultimately what we're fighting for is, you know, our ways of life, our territories, our laws, our people. And so in the end, like we put just such a high importance on, uh, you know, respecting the, the sovereignty of nations and uh, respecting the ways of indigenous peoples and just trying to make sure that, you know, everything we did was to, to create like a good space for that learning to happen and, you know, for those laws to be upheld. Well, I think that's, you know, super important because, you know, we get into a lot of problems when when individuals claim to be part of a nation or they claim to speak on behalf of a nation without being accountable to that nation. And all times, all of the information that we were receiving seemed to be very follow, you know, cultural protocols and um, accountability protocols. And I really like that you in addition to safety, you are also making sure that people were being accountable. And and somehow you also found a way to make sure that the youth continued to be the ones speaking. Because as you know, in many events all over the country, it may start out with the youth, but the media and and you know older people tend to take over and then it takes on a life of its own but somehow you were able to keep everyone directed at the youth the youth were making the decisions youth were speaking i mean did you find that a challenge i think it was it was really cool honestly there was a lot of just 
very passionate youth that came out and that were willing to speak and willing to share. And that was really amazing to see. I, I got a couple of chances to, to speak at the legislature and it was honestly very, very empowering to just be surrounded by so many like-minded people it was really amazing to see. And I feel like we were pretty consistent in just, just having youth be willing to share their stories and, and willing to just tell folks why this movement is important to them as an individual from a completely separate nation. And a lot of people have those similar experiences. So I think, I think that was really cool to see, um, just the way that Indigenous youth really stepped up to, to share that. Maybe I'll, I'll just jump in. I think a big part of what I noticed is that we were really you know, doing our best to empower one another. And through our storytelling, like uh, so many of the youth there, you know, from all nations, like ultimately, you know, we, we told our stories. We talked about the struggles of our ancestors. We talked about the visions that we have for our people, and our nations, the visions of our communities, you know, what we aspire to and our current struggles are. So there was a lot of storytelling. There was a lot of communicating and uh, sharing knowledge and histories experiences and talking about our laws, our backgrounds, our families, still a whole history of resistance and, you know, just creating that space and really emphasizing those stories, building that community based on, you know, these kind of deeper, intimate understandings of who we are and what we want and why we are so invested in this struggle. Well, I just think critical to the whole thing, just making sure that you know, the voices of the youth were heard and uh, and not only heard, but just supported and mm-hmm. uh, brought to the forefront. What grew out of what you all did is something, not only did it make history, not only did it make a point, not only was it in solidarity, but it seemed to, at least from us watching it from afar, it seemed to turn from an occupation or a political statement into a gathering because you weren't just occupying the legislature and you know engaging in storytelling you were also engaged with the media and I think you were talking about you know there was drumming and singing and people would visit and I understand that there were some other events that were held there you know could you talk about that a little bit because this really spawned into something much bigger well it was it was really amazing and and we really did form a community there. And and the folks that we connected with really became like family to us. All those Indigenous youth on the steps, they, we all know each other now. And, and many of us didn't at all before going into this. And, and the way that just community members really showed up to help us organize, it, it was really cool to see. And there were a couple of events that were held there. We did movie night. We showed... Kanasatake, 270 Years of Resistance. And um, Invasion and um, a couple of other films that were shown. It was, it was really cool because folks would just come out and sit on the steps and watch movies with us. Um, there was an event for Black History Month that was supposed to be at UVic. And the organizers of that changed the location to actually be at the legislature. So we had a panel of um, Indigenous and Black scholars and they came and just talked on the front steps of the legislature instead of holding it at UVic. There was a lot of solidarity going on across communities in Victoria. And so, yeah, it was, it was really cool. And, and it showed a lot of solidarity coming not only from our Indigenous communities, but from the BIPOC communities in general. And yeah, I don't know, it was, it was really neat to see. And 
a lot of people came out to support us. Strength of our movements are always increased when we have all of these other allies, people who are with the same general purpose of social justice or earth justice. We may have all different issues, but when we can come together, you know, anti-poverty and climate change folks and anti-racism and anti-homelessness, and we, when we all come together, it makes a really huge statement to governments. And I mean, what you did just really interrupting the provincial speech from the throne, that was pretty significant. And I know as every day that went by and we saw that you were all still there, I mean, most of us, we would wake up in the morning and go, are they still there? (laughs) Are they still occupying the legislature? Because with each day that you add, that's more and more power just inherent in you being there and, and showing our determination in it. You know, to a lot of the youth that I talk to, because I'm, I'm a prof at a university, so I get to talk to a lot of different Native youth, they felt like it was giving them hope, even though they couldn't be there, or they might have been involved in their other scenario, and they knew just how difficult it is for, you know, the Wet'suwet'en to be able to defend themselves against coastal gas link and the RCMP and federal and provincial governments and all of the powers that be, But by all of you youth, you know, having that strength and determination to stay there day after day made so many people think that there was hope, that we could do this, that we could affect change. And I I mean, you have, both of you and and all of you who participated in it have really, really re-inspired people. And not just youth, but me and everybody else who's involved in the movement, you've really inspired people. I mean, have has it kind of sunk in just the incredible power and inspiration of what you all did? Yeah, it's, you know, quite frankly, I'm still just trying to comprehend, like, the the enormous community response that we received. We received so much support from uh, you know, so many leaders from all throughout you know, numerous nations. We had hereditary chiefs join us, the legislature elected chiefs. We had people from all parts of our communities just come together and to be focused around this one issue. And, and like you mentioned, like we, we drew in a lot of people from a lot of backgrounds and, uh, you know, a lot of different movements and really managed to synthesize our message and make it clear, like what was happening on what's in territories is the cutting edge of all of these issues. And to kind of work from that standpoint to, to achieve this huge victory for all of us, because a victory for the what's you know, is a victory for everyone. That's, that's something that, I was saying a lot while we were down there. Then even the response from our immediate communities, actually during the second legislature occupation, Shay and I were flown up by the Gixan hereditary chiefs back to our, our home community. And, you know, there they, they honored us and, you know, really supported us and held us up. And you know, just to hear their words and their support and just to see that kind of fire lit, you know, in everyone's spirits and to, just know that like our, our community was watching us and they were supporting us and they were loving us and ultimately that you know we, we were making an impact and you know just to hear like our chiefs talk about you know that kind of renewed strength and, and given everything that was going on and you know how much they wanted to ultimately take this time to like really push forward to you know make it clear that like our nations are sovereign that our nations you know, cannot be pushed around and that we hold the power and just, you know, we have the truth behind us. We have the laws, we have our responsibilities to our territories. And 
know, just to see everyone kind of rallying around this and to see our people empowered, you know, after so many years of just uh, consultation processes that go nowhere, of failed treaty negotiations, and, uh, you know, so many of these kind of bureaucratic uh, deadlocks that we've been lured into, you know, throughout this, this whole reconciliation process and, you know, for everyone to come together and to, you know, especially for people to start making it clear that reconciliation is dead like that was huge. Like that's kind of the end of an era of these predatory practices for Canada. Definitely when we say reconciliation is dead, it's not to say that there's no hope for, you know, building good and just relations between our nations and I guess the colonizers. But <laughs> like ultimately what we're saying is that, you know, what has been happening and uh, the approach taken by Canada and, you know, ultimately the status quo of colonialism is no longer acceptable and it cannot be hidden under the veneer of the, these keywords or catchphrases such as reconciliation. I, I really hadn't experienced anything of this magnitude before and it was really just bizarre to see the way that things unfolded and and how empowering it was every day that we were there and and really it was easy to just get caught up in, in doing the things that we needed to do every day and not not process how how much of an impact that we were making there but when you take a step back and we got a chance to look at it it's it's really unreal just thinking that that we were part of something historical and, and that's still ongoing. And we recognize that whatever happens in this context of the Wet'suwet'en asserting their rights and title, that that's going to be huge for Indigenous people all across Turtle Island and all across the world, really, because people around the world are watching what's happening. And, and I think that I caught myself many times just feeling like, it wasn't real to be a part of something so so beautiful and and so huge and i didn't experience a lot of my culture growing up and so being a part of ceremony and song and prayer at the legislature was really a huge learning experience for me and and i think that's that's not something that was unique to myself i think that a lot of indigenous youth who who didn't get the chance to grow up in their cultures they really saw the beauty of the youth that got to learn their cultural teachings and the way that they were willing to share with one another, I think was really huge for our community. And, and just taking that all in and recognizing that a connection to our culture really is essential in these movements and recognizing the work that we're doing and that that will uphold us because that's what our ancestors have been doing hundreds of years. I'm so glad you said that because, you know, through this podcast and my other social media, I get so many questions and concerns from especially Native youth saying, you know, I don't know my role in this or I don't see my part because I grew up in foster care or I grew up away from my community or I didn't really have a lot of exposure to my culture. And that's the great thing about Native resistance is that it's tied to resurgence. And all, you know, all of our resistance efforts are very much grounded in our culture and it's never too late to learn any of that. And by actually participating in our resistance, its acts of resurgence are also very much grounded in culture. And so this is, this is another way in which we can reconnect people who have been torn away from us through colonization. And as both of you know, we're not even talking historic colonization. We're talking about ongoing ways in which the state tries to assimilate and divide and keep us apart. And, and you know, resistance 
being so tied to resurgence and the way that you purposefully made sure that there was culture there. It was grounded in culture and, you know, your nations were very thankful for what you did. And I think that just goes to show our native youth, you know, it's never too late. It's not our fault colonization. And by engaging in resistance, we're also engaging in acts of cultural resurgence. And I, and I think there's a path for anybody who wants to participate. You know, I'm still just blown away by everything that happened. Like, uh, you know, the community we built, we were so lucky to be a part of. Full, beautiful, empowering. And you could see just how much of a, you know, in effect that we were having on that legislature and that legislative assembly. You know, just even following the day when we uh, soft blockaded all the entrances to conversations that took place after that. I just had an offhand chat with someone from the legislature and they were saying, like, yeah, like the, the people in there, like, you know, they were really shook by, uh, you know, having so many people at every entrance just telling mm-hmm. them shame, telling them stand with us, telling them you're complicit in like the ongoing genocide of our peoples. And, you know, it, it was just funny to me, like that whole shift in dynamic where like for once, you know, it's the indigenous youth that are traumatizing the government. <laughs> Still in a good and kind way, but it's... <laughs> that's maybe my favorite part too. <laughs> <laughs> like, just ultimately, you know, it was really interesting, kind of navigating all of that, and you know, just kind of finding ourselves caught up in an information war, because you know, we were out there, like the the leaders, future leaders, uh, you know, just all these powerful young indigenous peoples who had come together and were ultimately building like these deep connections that'll last, I'm sure, generations between all our nations. Like the implications of what happened, you know, will be felt for, you know, years to come as we like bring our nations together and we start to realize the strength and our unity. And then meanwhile, the BC legislature, the government, John Horgan, they tried to paint us as just a, like a mindless mob, uh, Protesters, they did everything in their power to not admit, you know, that we were the indigenous youth, that we were like the, the future people that their government would have to be speaking to. You know, we are the relationships that, you know, this government really should should have been uh, prioritizing within all this if they had any semblance mm-hmm. of a long term vision of, you know, actually building good relations between our people. They would have honored us. They would have spoke with us. They wouldn't have tried to discredit us so hard and to smear us and to intimidate us. And like we, we saw the true colors of the of the BC legislature, especially in how they, you know, interacted with indigenous youth. And so we, we had to constantly, you know, keep ourselves in check and just ultimately we relied on the truth. That was that was our our, our tool. We, we relied on the truth and like the love we had for each other, you know, the love we have for each other that will continue on for so long. And and just to see how visibly shook the BC government was by our gathering there, like even if they wouldn't admit it, even if they tried so desperately to suppress our message and uh, what we were trying to say, just to to see the power of us coming together of. Uh, you know, people all across the world who uh, were a part of it and connecting with us through like social media or, you know, through any means necessary. And, you know, we'll feel what happened for years to come and no doubt like the work continues and you know, we're still like this community is, is only growing. Gosh, you, you guys will probably hear 
There's so much more. <laughs> like this is for sure not the end. And when we left the legislature the first time, like we, we made it clear, we told BC, like you know, we will always be back, and we'll be back as long as it is necessary. And the struggle is the long one. And you know, our our ancestors haven't given it up for you know over half a millennia. And like we're not going to stop now. So don't you ever think it's over because we're going to always be here to hold up our laws and hold you know the colonial government to account. No doubt. It's so powerful. I mean, just what you were saying, you know, that the, the people were visibly shook. And I don't think BC ever had in its mind ever that it would have to be talking to Indigenous youth of, you know, such such big issues. And it makes me kind of want to follow up because right before the pandemic, there was this meeting that was set up with uh i think it was the bc minister of indigenous relations and reconciliation with the youth and is that the meeting where you all went into the building we got a call from um, one of the ministerial assistants for the ministry of um, indigenous affairs and reconciliation and Mm -hmm. and they had requested to meet with us because we put out a call that morning saying that we were giving the government 24 hours to meet with us and so Scott Fraser is the minister, is that minister, and um, they had also included Adam Olson, who's the interim leader for the BC Green Party, to witness the conversation. And so there were seven of us that that were brought into the legislature, and we had a meeting with Scott Fraser. Yeah, had about an hour and a half of of conversation, and and ultimately in the end, we asked, "Will you do everything in your power?" to get Coastal Gaslink and the RCMP off with Sowetan territories and if Scott Fraser would stand with us and he said no. Wow. And so we really recognized that that we needed to do something and so we decided that we weren't going to leave the room until uh, the RCMP and Coastal Gaslink were off with Sowetan territories. And so we, we took a minute after the meeting and we, we had some time and um, they came back in to, to ask us to leave, and we said that we wouldn't be leaving until the right, uh, the demands of the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs were upheld, and Coastal Gaslink and the RCMP were off the Yinta. And so from, from there, it was an exciting night, but um, it ended with five Indigenous youth, including Colin and myself, being removed from the legislature in the late evening, early morning. Tons of folks gathered outside to support us, and try and witness and keep us safe. And we recognize throughout all of this, really, that visibility is what was going to keep us safe. And that's mm-hmm. why we have interaction with the media. And that's why it was so important that folks were coming out to support us, because we, we knew that when people were there, we had a better chance of being safe from the police than we did when we were there alone. Yeah, it was it was an exciting night, I'd say. <laughs> In all this time, you know, not just that night, but, you know, the whole time, were any youth ever arrested and charged for anything? There were two of our supporters that one day during the second occupation were detained very briefly and brought into the legislature because we had um, Bray Chalk. And so the the legislature security actually arrested them and then brought them into the building, denied legal... access to a legal observer um, and then those two were brought to the edge of the property and were not allowed to return and so those are the only two arrests prior to the five that happened on the last day of the second occupation 
those first two were the chalk, uh, the chalk incident, which, I mean, it just, to us on media, looked absolutely ridiculous that people <laughs> would be detained for chalk, which is, I mean, kids, right? You know, small kids use chalk on sidewalks. Mm-hmm. But um, so those were two that were detained and removed. Were they ever charged or were they just detained and removed? Not to my knowledge. I believe that they were just brought to the edge of the property. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so then... Now you just referenced five other ones who were, were they removed or charged? So, uh, I mean, just quickly on on the topic of the chalk, uh, (laughs) that was biodegradable, water-soluble chalk. And, uh, you know, they really tried their best to smear us over that one. BD was making statements like an unknown substance was like applied and like, you know, they clearly <laughs> confiscated the cans and could see all the ingredients and all that information. And yet they still tried their best to work with what they had to discredit us. And that was their, their way of operating that whole occupation. Mm-hmm. They were uh, very like active on their social media and Twitter, gating with youth and, and folks on Twitter about the things that were going on. And, and it all seemed very immature and just very they were definitely just trying to smear us and 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 tarnish the work that we were doing through through very small petty things yeah and uh in regards to the the five arrests Mm -hmm. which place after the meeting with scott razor you know we were basically detained and arrested uh for mischief under the criminal code you know at that point like you could tell it was very personal with uh, yeah. security and Vic PD and they pulled all their stops and they really tried their best to make a spectacle of it. And, you know, even going to the point of, you know, accusing us of like denying the entire city of policing services due to our actions. And it, They really had to stretch it. I mean, yeah. it was one of the most amazing native solidarity actions I've ever seen. And, you know, if, if you're resorting to bad mouthing chalk, then, you know, you know, you've got to be desperate. So, I mean, with with those five arrests after the meeting with Scott Frazier, did they actually proceed to file charges and take you to court or did they eventually drop those? They're they're pending right now. Do you have lawyers that are helping you? Yeah, we actually we've we've had an amazing response from the legal community. There's been lots of folks that have been willing to take on just supporting folks and recognizing that there was always potential for arrest being at the legislature. Mm -hmm. Because there is an injunction in place that was filed by the Office of the Speaker after the first ledge occupation that was actually in the works during the first occupation. We, we always had, had lawyers that were ready to um, be called in case folks were getting arrested. And so there's oh, been a lot, of, okay. a lot of amazing people that have just been willing to take on that work. Yeah, that's great because it really shows that everybody can serve a different role in all of these kinds of solidarity actions. Not everyone has to be on the front lines. You could be providing legal support. You could be providing, you know, financial donations. There's like all different ways in which we can support. And and I know I've, I've almost used up all your time, but I really wanted to know from both of you, how did this experience impact you? Because I know talking to some people who were down at Standing Rock during Dakota Access Pipeline, some of them feel very like really traumatized by what happened. I mean, that was a very different scenario. A lot of state violence in others, people feel very uplifted in other scenarios. It's like a combination. But overall, what do you consider to be the best or worst part from your perspective about this whole experience? I, I think just uh, 
getting back to the you know the fact that so many of us from so many different nations backgrounds like we all rallied around this and shared our knowledge and shared our stories shared our histories and really like everyone just had a better grasp of the overall situation and you know the implications of what was happening you know in regards to facing off with the dc government you know just really learning uh like a lot more about you know our interactions with them our interactions with police how to uh you know assert our power like the uh, the authority of our peoples and sovereign nations and to really do so in a, in a way that's in accordance with like our, our history our ancestry and our teachings you know for myself i learned so much like even with that conversation with scott fraser you know speaking like our truth speaking our minds our hearts and then just to see the government try so desperately to dodge all accountability to try to tell us that they had absolutely no say over the actions of the RCMP, which we later <laughs> found false to say that they had no influence over the, the EAO, which we found out to be false, just to mm. ultimately take no accountability whatsoever for their actions and, you know, for ourselves to realize, like, you know, that's up to us to get the truth out there. Like, you know, they have to rely on deception. They have to rely on, you know, gaslighting and twisting truths. But, you know, all we have is our truth. And we have, uh, you know, the communities, the histories, and, uh, you know, the stories in which we can express our truth. Like, for me, I've, like, the struggle is a bit more defined. And uh, I think we're all learning as we go. And I think we're, we're starting to find kind of where our power lies. And just to see everyone unite. And, you know, it's very clear that with this issue, you know, the BC government, Canada, you know, they're, they're awakening the sleeping giant. And with the times to come, like it, like no doubt things will, will never be the same. Like when, when we say reconciliation is dead, we mean it. You know, those behaviors, those actions, those tactics that they've employed to control our peoples, to, uh, to exploit our lands undermine and attempt to erase our governments and way of life like that won't fly no longer you know just from seeing the resistance all across this country like it's inspiring it's uplifting it's empowering and you know to just have been a part of that and then to to know that we're going to be a part of it for many many years to come and you know just to have that hope that you know we work hard enough and our maybe our grandkids will not have to live that struggle and you know, they'll be able to just live a life beautiful and happy and you know in accordance with our laws and our territories. And, you know, there's a lot of work to be done, but I, I think it's it's all achievable. You know, especially with, like, the younger generations of uh, you know, non-Indigenous peoples that were at the legislature, those connections we made, those understandings, the communication, and to see all that support come from the wider community, it's very uplifting and i think you know the bc government better change its course and better start acting in good faith and uh honesty or else be a pretty big reckoning coming their way exactly what about you shaylin what what do you take away from this was this overall a good experience for you or was there anything negative for you i think both i think that it was really like called said amazing to just see that community not only on the kwangan and Masonic territories but like Going, going all across the world, you saw solidarity actions happening and, and just knowing that we created another front line at, at the BC legislature. And it was something that the government couldn't ignore at that point because we were at their doorstep. I think 
I think that was really, really amazing. And, and honestly, just thinking about the work that our ancestors have done to get us to this point so that we could have the community support that we had. I have a, a newborn niece. She's just eight months old now. A lot of the time I found myself thinking that I wanted her to have a better life than than ha having to be on these front lines and sleep on the cold steps of the legislature to get, to get things done and just knowing that that's the same train of thought that our ancestors had going into this, that they wanted a better life for the generations to come and, and just seeing the different ways that all the Indigenous youth at the legislature took up that work in the same way that our people have always done. I think, I think that's really empowering to see and definitely something I'm never going to forget in my lifetime. And, and it's one of the biggest things, it's definitely the biggest thing I've ever been a part of. And I think that's true for a lot of the Indigenous youth that were there. And it was scary at moments. It was, it was scary at times when, when we were alone in the legislature and, and just knowing that no one really knew where we were um, inside of it. And we were in there for hours before they, they took us out of the building. That, there were times when it was scary, but I knew that if anything happened to us inside, that the folks outside would be there for us and that people were watching what was happening. And, and just knowing that really, really kept me grounded and, and singing the songs of our people and, and continuing to pray during that time it really, it really kept us grounded, I think. And, and that's something that, that you can't forget. And honestly, I, I'm, I'm really grateful and just humbled to be a part of this movement and just being recognized by our hereditary chiefs at home and, mm -hmm. and that being a huge honor. It was, it was all very humbling to stand alongside those folks and have our voices be out there with them. I'm just wondering, you know, as we're wrapping up here, do you have any parting pieces of advice for Native youth who want to get involved in resistance and resurgence? Just reach out to the networks that you have and, and folks that you see are doing this work, I think, because we're always very welcoming to take in new Indigenous youth that were seeing what we were doing and starting to show up, because um, that happened a lot like folks would see the work that we're doing and they would want to be a part of it and just I think really extending that and just being willing to take in in folks that are willing to learn and that want to learn and want to be a part of the movement I think that's that's so important to foster those relationships and and be willing to to put in that work because ultimately we we just need to uphold one another and mm -hmm. and recognize that we're all at different parts of our journey with our culture and, and with relearning and decolonizing and, and that resurgence work. And so just recognizing that, that there's a place for everyone within these movements. And I just want to share a quick proverb from the, the years of Delgamook versus British Columbia. You'll hear this often in Gixan country, but what is there to fear? We have the truth behind us. So hold on to that truth and you, know, you can overcome all of their lies and deception. Wow. Well, both of you, I, I'm so incredibly grateful to actually be able to talk to you and hear from you and hear about your experiences, you know, and, and give a chance for all of our listeners on the Warrior Life podcast to hear from you too, because there's a lot of Native youth from Canada and the US, essentially Turtle Island. And, you know, you've done so much, not just to advocate for the Wet'suwet'en, but you've inspired the rest of us. And, you know, you've really given us hope. And, you know, I thank you to that. And, and I think in general, we need to do more 
than give lip service to the youth. We have to see them as leaders in their own right, not future leaders, but the leaders of right now, because you and lots of other Native youth are the ones on the ground organizing and demanding change. I mean, Native youth, you're our future and you're our present. And I think we have to really shift how we think about leadership and governance and and the important role of youth, because ultimately, with people like you two leading the way, I have endless hope for the future. And even when things get difficult, I think, well, you know, if they can occupy that legislature in the cold for that long, you know, we can do our part, too. So thank you both so much for being on this podcast and sharing your wisdom and experience and and for taking all the risks that you did to your own personal freedoms and liberties. Hamia for having us. It, hey, hey, it, it means a lot um, that you brought us on. Well, thank you all to my listeners for tuning into this show. I hope you enjoyed listening and learning from these amazing Native youth warriors. Remember, this is the week of action for Wet'suwet'en Solidarity. So if you haven't taken action yet, you can go to the websites that we'll post in the description box for this podcast. I'll post links to the websites for the Wet'suwet'en Nation, the Unistoten and Gidimden, uh, people who are doing action this week, all in solidarity. As And if you like this episode, one of the ways that you can support is actually by sharing these episodes and, and getting their voices out, the voices of the Native youth far and wide. I'm hosted on SoundCloud, but you can also access this podcast by iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, all the usuals. And you can subscribe to my videos on YouTube, where I also tackle difficult political legal issues facing Indigenous peoples. And, and really trying, the whole focus here is trying to lift up the voices of our warriors and show this younger generation that, you know, they can lead the way, there is hope for the future. And with Shaylin and Colin and everybody else leading the way, I think we have a really good future. And in case you want any more information, you can check out my website at www.pampometer.com. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walaliog. We'll